Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm back on the Lemmisip, so you know it's winter time. Yeah, um, I have not been hit by the by the magnitude 10 cold that's going around yet, and I'm a little bit nervous about it. I'd better not have a magnitude 10 cold. I don't have time to have a magnitude 10 cold, but <laughs> I have a magnitude 1 cold right now. Like, um, not really in anything, but I'm overreacting. I mean, that's what you've got to do. Like it makes you like it is a it is an important part of the healing process to take some time to just <laughs> whine about how awful everything is and how yeah, unfair even it I is feel that you have the sniffles that I have like germs come at me all the time and I think it's very selfish of them. It is very selfish of them. They don't think about my deadlines. They don't think about the work I've got to do. They just want to reproduce themselves. <laughs> They're, they are the selfish ones, definitely. They are the selfish ones. Don't think about anybody but themselves. <laughs> they really don't. Unlike um, us, we only think of other people. Yeah, exclusively. I never think about myself at all. No. Um, and we answer people's questions out of the goodness of our heart. And <laughs> for our, uh, our own personal joy. What, what question are we answering this time? What question are we asking? This time we are answering a question from Chris McDermott. Um, (laughs) And he said, I was listening to a podcast earlier today, not a history one, which is probably for the best because they got quite a lot of details wrong in this. Um, (laughs) It mentioned a story of a poor girl from the early 1800s, I think from Cork, who was kidnapped by pirates while on a ship to Europe and ended up in the slave markets of Morocco, where she went on to marry the Sultan and became his favourite wife. Apparently, there is not much information about his her life, and I was wondering if this was true. Do you have any more details? And are there other notable stories where someone has gone from one life to a totally different one? Um, and so I did some investigation on this woman whose mm-hmm. name was Helen Glogue. Yeah. Um, and not not from Cork at all. Not from Cork at all. Um, but we've done some of her, and then we have some other stories of a similar sort of things. Um, but. Helen Glogue was um, born in Scotland. She is part of a Perthshire tradition. Um, Perthshire seems to have claimed her, basically. (laughs) Um, And she definitely did exist. She was born in 1750 um, and she was the daughter of a blacksmith. Then her mother died and her father remarried and she didn't like her stepmother. So she left home with Mm -hmm. a group of friends when she was about 19 um, in the late 18th century and decided to emigrate to South Carolina to start a new life. Um, From there, everything gets a little bit murkier Mm -hmm. uh, as to what actually happened to her. Um, It seems that she did end up somewhere in the Mediterranean area somehow um Mm -hmm. and at some point she sent back some fine china to her brother um and to a kind of local farmer as a present um called john bain unclear what his relationship with the whole thing was so just maybe at some point (laughs) maybe she just liked him who knows maybe he was nice to her but she said did at some point send back some fine china which is notably not moroccan Mm. um and at the same time um in edinburgh 
a building was built which is called um morocco house or something along those lines um which includes a statue of a naked black figure wearing a turban and a necklace um (laughs) and these two stories like nobody knew why that existed um (laughs) or why anybody would build that in edinburgh sure but um a guy called robert chambers in the 1820s he wrote the first edition and then 1868 he wrote a second edition i could only find a second edition so this is the 1868 version of the story Mm -hmm. um basically wrote a book called traditions of edinburgh in which he went around and collected folklore um and folk tales about various things in edinburgh and he went kind of street by street um and he did this morocco house um and tried to explain why there was this um, African figure on the front of it. And the story that he told was that a young woman belonging to Edinburgh had been kidnapped um, while travelling by African pirates who had sold into the harem of the Emperor of Morocco, um, which is a different thing from being a wife, but we'll get to that in a minute, Um, with whom she became a favourite mindful like her countrymen in general of her native land she held such a correspondence with home as led a brother of hers to enter into a trading relationship with morocco um which made him very rich out of which he built this mansion and out of gratitude or a feeling of vanity regarding his imperial brother-in-law he erected a statue of that personage on his on the front of his house um Mm -hmm. such being a notion (laughs) like basically he's like this is what a scottish person who's never been to morocco thinks that a person from morocco looks like sure yeah Um, classic and so that is the the story that apparently people told about why there was this african um (laughs) like frankly sounds quite racist story um yeah like little statue in edinburgh um And it kind of gets fleshed out over time from that and starts turning up in lots of books, like books just like Perthshire legends and things like that. Um, Mm. And it gets more and more detail that she was captured by Moroccan pirates, that she was purchased by Sultan Sidi Mohammed, um, who was the Sultan of Morocco around like in the, until about 1793. Mm -hmm. Um, and she entered into his harem where she bore him two sons, which made her a favourite. Um, that she turned into this trading relationship with her brother. Um, and then she was somehow involved in the succession crisis that followed Sidi Muhammad's death, um, mm-hmm. at which point she disappears. Um, Pre- like presumably killed, I think. Yeah, presumably yeah. killed. None of her, her sons ever become um, any kind of sultan themselves mm-hmm. um mostly because he has three legitimate wives so it, okay one thing we need to know is that a harem is not wives a harem is like concubines, just women yeah, yeah not even concubines just women that he sleeps with or keeps around basically yeah. and then you have legitimate wives um and very conveniently for us a guy called william lemprere mm-hmm. um who was a doctor from jersey he went travelling around North Africa um, and kind of doing freelance doctoring, um, 
which included a trip to Morocco where he met Sidi Mohammed and was his kind of live-in doctor for a little while where he spent <laughs> the entire time complaining that they weren't being nice enough to him. <laughs> um, and that his lodgings were not good enough. Um, at one point, he's like, people keep throwing rubbish into the garden and I don't like it. So he just keeps complaining about that. He's very unimpressed by uh, how he is treated. Um but he um, he's also a mad uh, phrenologist. Like, he's really into phrenology. Sure, that's always a red flag. <laughs> it is always a red flag. Anyway, so he um, hangs around there. He meets both um, his wives, uh, Sidi Muhammad's wives, and also his entire harem. Mm-hmm. Um, so he meets all of them. And he describes them as including some women who are white. Um, but when they... When he enters there, like they're kept in a compound with guards, like unit guards, um, and they're just sort of locked away. Yeah. Um, so they're not allowed to see anybody at all. Um, he goes in to meet them, um, and they he describes them as being just absolutely either enthralled by him, like absolutely overwhelmed with like, wow, How this is so amazing weird. He was for having white skin and etc. Yeah, or mm. find him absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I mean, he does so. sound like a pompous ass, so I can understand that. So he wrote, Upon their observing the unusual figure of a European, the whole multitude in a body surrounded me and expressed an utmost astonishment at my dress and appearance. I'm assuming he's in a suit, so they're probably low, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> it um, looks uncomfortable as hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, some stood motionless with their hands lifted up their eyes fixed and their mouths open in a usual attitude of wonder and surprise while some burst into immoderate fits of laughter while others came up again and with uncommon attention eyed me from head to foot (laughs) Um, so they and they basically just relentlessly take the piss out of him Um, Yeah, but he basically says he says they're all kind of mostly um black women um Mm -hmm. but he says there's like they're all shades and all different types of women are there but what he doesn't say is oh hey one of them was scottish um yeah or one of them was european or like he describes them and that goes on for quite a long time like describes them quite clearly as being um like having never met a european before and being goggle-eyed with either hilarity or look at this weird freak Um, yeah yeah it's what i found interesting is i found another couple of mentions of european women who supposedly were went via the slave markets of morocco to become the wife of or concubine of a sultan like martha francesini who uh, was apparently is is claimed to have been a concubine and then wife of uh muhammad bin abdallah and Mm -hmm. lala balquis who was uh, a concubine of Sultan Ismail Ibn Sharif, and they all end up becoming a favorite. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> every account of a European woman who ended up <laughs> in a harem in, on, in Morocco w- was a favorite, apparently, which is an interesting, they, an interesting, uh, wee piece of connective tissue. It is, it's because they just can't help but fall in love with that pure white skin and perfect, good European. 
stock. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's like a romantic novel fantasy version of, of life is that, you know, this well-brought-up yeah, nice uh, European woman ends up falling in love with her captor, who is this, you know, dramatic who is a sultan. billionaire sultan. Yeah. I believe those stories still sell very, very well. I think there was an arc... Singles. There was an arc like that on... Um, the Bold and the Beautiful when I was at high school. I watched it every time I was off sick and the same storyline was consistent throughout my four year, five years of high school and it involved one nice. of the women crash landing somewhere, you know, exotic and becoming the prisoner and then wife and beloved, like, yep. you know. It's it's a fun time. It's a fun story. Not sure about and, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a classic tale. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I was following this around and... When you, if you look at the Wikipedia, which is where I started with this, um, then about at least half, I would say, of the sources that they list for the Wikipedia page are novels, <laughs> <laughs> which is an interesting approach to sourcing things. Um, but there do seem to be quite a few novels, um, including by like decent writers of this story, because it obviously it captures the attention. Yeah. Um, but when I started like looking up people who had actually looked at it, like it's ba- it's folklore basically. It's mm. clearly like a folkloric story. The Biographical Dictionary of Scottish Women, um, which includes her, um, <laughs> rather brutally suggests that Helen herself or her brother had made up this empress story uh, in order to explain how she had got rich in while traveling around Morocco um, and how she had got her hands on nice fine china or to cover up what they call a more salubrious career. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is implying that she might have gone off to Africa or gone off to somewhere in the Mediterranean and become a sex worker and been really good at it. Um, yeah. Which I suppose is as likely as anything else but i was just like well that comes out of nowhere a little bit (laughs) (laughs) Um, like i don't know why we need to be making that kind of a um that kind of a claim but yeah so it seems to be a nice bit of um of scottish folklore which combines the fact that this building exists in edinburgh and this story of a girl who did go off somewhere Mm -hmm. um and was successful doing something yeah. um, and sent her brother some presents. It's one of those interesting things where it's like, I don't know, there's there's a weird assumption, I think, in general, when people think about the past, that there was very little contact between yes. um, Muslim empire and European empires and, and all of that, and we, which we've mentioned before. And that's like not true. Like there's always been trade, there's always been contact. And they're not that far apart um, to some extent. So it's like, but but also that doesn't mean that harems were full of white women. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that they were, but yeah. maybe somewhere. But I don't think that Helen was there, I'm afraid. Mostly because I'm pretty sure, like, I read most of, uh, like, the important Morocco bits. It's a, called a tour from Gibraltar to Tangier, Sali, Mogador, Santa Cruz and Taradent, and thence over Mount Atlas to Morocco, including a particular account of the Royal Harem, etc. Um, <laughs> which is a kind of title you just can't get away with anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does indeed have a particular account of the Royal Harem. Um, and it has quite long, like a lot of it is about um, his dealings with um, Sadi Mohammed and 
the court and everybody who was there. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that he definitely would have included, oh, hey, one of them was Scottish and spoke English and had two sons, and that's interesting. Yeah. Um, Because he describes, like, the family that he lives next door to and the fact that they make him sit on cushions and... Um, yeah. all of the things that are wrong with everyone that he treats. Um, so it would be a very weird omission. Yeah. Um, so it's very convenient that that exists because, um, but it is a nice bit of, it's a nice romantic novel story. Um, mm. And you can totally see where they got it. Um, yeah. But yeah. And the yeah. fact that it's not technically true is not that important, I suppose. Yeah. It's it's kind of important for how we see um Islamic harems in Morocco, I suspect. Like are they full of women who have been kidnapped and enslaved? Um, or is it something more complicated than that? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, but we have other stories which are um similar kind of fun stuff. Yeah, we didn't uh we talked about like there are quite a lot of stories of people doing something dramatic in a different country that kind of takes their lives when it's around war but we didn't include those um but i i have a lot of uh colonialist ones i'm calling this bracket colonial assimilation which is basically a white person who joins up with a tribe of the indigenous people of the country that she has participated or he has participated in colonizing basically so the, the yeah. i feel like the i feel like this the most famous one and i don't know if i just have assumed this is because i read a book about her when i was a kid is mary jemison who i have never heard of her maybe i just happened to stumble across a book about her when i was a kid maybe. and so i assumed she was famous she, she is one who there are interesting like the book that i read as a kid was a novelization but i feel like it was more a novelization than a novel based on if that makes sense in the same way as like you get a novelization of a movie because it was just pushing (laughs) it was putting her own account of her life into a novelized format for kids if that makes sense and there are other books about her that are not novelizations at all she's not exclusive sources um so she was uh she was irish she was born she was actually born aboard the ship uh from ireland to the american colonies Um, when her parents were immigrating and when she was 12 during the French and Indian War uh, her family's farm was raided by a group that included both Shawnee warriors and French uh, soldiers the whole family were captured and a neighbour and the neighbour's son were captured and Mm -hmm. taken away and they trekked about for a couple of days Um, and then after I think like two, two days two days trekking uh the mary and the neighbor's son were taken aside and they would they had their shoes taken away and they were given moccasins um and prepared to continue walking um and then a day or so later the uh some of the soldiers returned with the skulls of mary's family basically which they then cleaned um she was later told that the reason the rest of the party were were killed is because they were being pursued so I think they kept alive the two who were young enough to be adopted, but old enough okay. not to slow them down. Um, so like she had she had younger siblings who were toddlers and, and they were killed and her parents were killed. Um, so she, she just was, happened to be the right age to survive. Exactly the right age to be to be worth <laughs> worth keeping, yeah. I guess. Um, so she was taken to a Seneca settlement um, and adopted, given the name Dehawais. I'm not sure about that pronunciation. Uh, and... Uh, 
just assimilated into this Seneca the Seneca family uh, when she was an adult she married a Delaware man Delaware here meaning the Delaware people rather than the yeah. city, <laughs> the current modern city um, his name was Shininji and they had one son before he died um, and she married a Seneca man called Haikatu and had another six children with him um, during the Revolutionary War the Seneca people supported the British basically because I guess they didn't agree with the idea that Americans had any claim, like white Americans could, <laughs> could claim yeah. the land. And they thought that if the British won the war, then they would, there wouldn't be further colonization or further lost land. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they reckoned without the uh, absolute lack of care for anyone but themselves of the British, because ultimately yeah. it's a trend yeah. of the British. Um, ultimately is an attempt attempted concession to the revolutionary forces the british just gave up all of all of their holdings of this area of the country including all of the seneca land without asking anyone else um so they basically lost everything anyway and mary uh helped to negotiate that treaty to make sure that they got a little bit more out of it than they otherwise would have which i think was probably a big fat nothing um and she, and <laughs> yeah. she just she just lived out her life with them she uh gave an account of her life to uh a, a minister at some point whose name for some reason i have not written down uh which is where we get most of the information about yeah what that night was like when she was taken and her life since then but yeah what there you go. yeah what a life what a life what a life um it is. I think that. I mean, from what I gather, there are a lot of these lives. Um, yeah, but... I mean, it's not. It's 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 what happens when groups of people come into contact. Sometimes people move about. It is one of the ones that I was considering including, but didn't in the end. Um, was um, Tis Quantum, who is known to Americans as Quant- as Squanto. Mm-hmm. Um, who is the Native American man who um, is in the first Thanksgiving story mm-hmm. uh, because he basically negotiated um, like negotiated peace between the pilgrims of the Mayflower and the and local um, Native Americans and um, bas- and taught them how to not die. Uh, <laughs> like he's and the reason that he was able to do that was because he had been kidnapped um abducted and enslaved um and taken to spain where he had then been taken from um he was taken by an english fisherman who decided to improve his uh improve his profits by including people mm-hmm. so he kidnapped like 20 native americans um and took them off to Spain where he tried to sell them and everyone was like, what the fuck, guy? Um, we're trying to um, get on with these guys at the moment. <laughs> um, and just randomly kidnapping loads of people makes us look really bad. Um, and so some priests um, took all of the people that he had enslaved um, and kind of took them off to a monastery and Christianized them and then let them go. Mm-hmm. But... Um, of which Tisconton was one of them and he then made his way to England where he lived for a while until he could convince somebody to take him back to Canada mm-hmm. um, and then he made his way back down to um, his home he made his way back to find that uh, there had been loads more contact between the Europeans and 
his people and that they had basically completely eradicated his entire nation through disease. Yeah, did you, um, I I remember learning recently that that the reason that that happened it's not just because they introduced diseases that hadn't that no one had a natural immunity to on the American continent before that it's that they introduced the first communicable diseases to the American yeah. continent. Before this, the idea of passing an illness from one person to another was not known. Like none of the diseases they had worked like that. So you you re- responded to someone being sick by gathering around them and looking after them and when people started to then die sort of en masse from these diseases that everyone else fled carrying it to the next village and because they had no they had no systems in place for dealing with communicable disease at all which um just is really horrible and interesting and depressing very depressing um yes uh i read I can't remember if I mentioned this before. I read a Lauren Binet book earlier this year called Civilizations, um, which is an alternate history um, where the basically it has Viking, uh, like Greenlanders, um, making their way to South America mm-hmm. um, and traveling around and being more successful than they actually were. Mm-hmm. Um and as a result, they introduce um, they introduce the diseases much earlier, like in the tenth century. Yeah. Um, and so by the time um, kind of full European contact occurs, the people of um, South and Central America are largely immune to the stuff that's coming over. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, and they also, and this is the other thing, which um, like in this alternate history, they introduce as horses. So um, by the time the uh, everything happens, um, the Aztecs have horses and they have some immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they do is kill the fuck out of the first Europeans who arrive, <laughs> <laughs> take their ships and then travel to Spain, um, where they then basically invade Spain. Um, And it is a reverse situation whereby um, they do lots of dealings and um, describe continental Europe um, at the time of uh, in like the 16th century through the lens of a colonizer Mm -hmm. um, rather than the colonized um, and alike and keep calling sheep um, short necked llamas, which is really funny. (laughs) Uh, They are, though. (laughs) um but it's really really good but just like this one like earlier contact basically means that by the time like you can spin out a story whereby by the time um it becomes dangerous contact yeah um, they can survive it basically and that one major weakness is wrong anyway um i wasn't that that's me talking about squanto who i'd actually deleted um (laughs) but He's very interesting. Um, but instead, I'm going to talk about Jack Renton, mm-hmm. who is known as the White Headhunter. Okay. Um, who has a story that I really like, um, in large part because somebody went and talked to the South Sea Islanders about their experiences. So we have both sides of the story. Excellent. Um, yeah. So this is like 1875. Um mm-hmm. Some um, fishermen rolled up in South Sea Island called um, Malaita mm-hmm. um, and was negotiating with the locals for trade and stuff when um, a white guy turned up. 
um, and spoke some English to him. Um, and he was like, hello. Uh, <laughs> um, and the white guy said he wanted to go home. So they popped him on his boat and took him back to, well, they took him to Brisbane where he wrote up his story for the Brisbane Courier. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote basically an autobiography. He's a guy called John Renton, otherwise known as Jack Renton, because of that weird thing where Jack is somehow short for John. Yeah. Um, nonsensical being... piece of English language bullshit where Jack is short for John. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. Yeah. Uh, I, for a very long time when I was younger, thought that John Kennedy and Jack Kennedy were different people. Um, yeah, cause because they should be, because they're different names. They have one letter <laughs> in common. Yeah, that's not short for it. Anyway, um, his Jack is from Orkney, um, mm-hmm. and when he is a teenager, he is um, kind of kidnapped and forced into service on an American ship, which is going cruising around the South Pacific, mm-hmm. um, which is apparently a thing that happened a lot. It still happens, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but he was pressed in service. While on the ship, um, he... Uh, falls in with some guys who want to get out of there um, mm-hmm. and so they plant they run away basically they get to when they get to the South Sea Island they get to McKean's Island in the South Sea they steal a lifeboat um, and take some water and go paddling off hoping that they will be able to get away and start a new life for themselves mm-hmm. um, this story goes on for ages um, <laughs> like um, there is a um, an extract of Jack's story was taken and republished in a book called The Colonizer, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is something. Um, and like this bit goes on for a really, really long time, and then the rest of the story is um, cut down to literally one sentence. <laughs> um, but for forty days, they float in the sea because they did not take a compass that worked with them um it's a rookie mistake it's a rookie mistake um and there's a lot of this story is explaining why they don't have a compass and all of the reasons it's like such a um defensive writing like <laughs> it's not our fault we didn't have a compass but anyway um they float around for 40 days um they have storms they have threatening to kill each other they have falling out with one another they have a knife fight with a shark sure. um which is how they get some food uh they eventually make it to the solomon islands um where by the time they get there three of them are dead um and one of them gets beaten to death Mm-hmm. Um, just for looking suspicious. Sure. Whereas Renton somehow um, is um, taken by the people of a village called Salufu, mm-hmm. which is on a, a man-made island off of the main island of Malaita. Mm-hmm. Um, so they made themselves an island. So they're kind of separatists, I guess. Um, <laughs> because they had met a white person before and found it so hilarious um, that they decided to keep Renton as a novelty, essentially. Because he's young and he's hilarious. Um, (laughs) He ingratiated himself with them because he comes from Orkney um, and has had a lifetime of working with fishing. Yeah. um, And also horticulture. So he has really great net making and fishing and sailing and he can garden. um, I feel like it would be quite nice to have 
go from living in Orkney to living in the Solomon Islands. That's a that's a climate climatal upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> and you will see that he feels largely the same way. Um, he's then kind of adopted um, by the the chief of the village, who teaches him the language and protects him from the other young men, um, mm-hmm. and teaches him uh, the culture. And then he becomes um part of the young warriors like as he gets older um he is put in what is basically the army because this is like tribal land and there's not that many resources and basically all these villagers spend 100 percent of their time just trying to fight each other mm-hmm. um because that's what they do and they're headhunters they collect heads yeah sure. um now jack nice, left this nice part- hobby it's nice to have a hobby. Um, Jack left this part out of his version of the story. Um, and he was like, and I lived there and wove nets and had a lovely time. Uh, but then a guy called Nigel Randall um, went there um, and talked to all of the people in Melita um, about their recollections, basically. So the <laughs> older generations. It's 1865 um, he was rescued. So it's only a couple of generations. Mm-mm. And knowledge is passed orally. Yeah. Um, one thing that he says, which is really interesting to me from a kind of purely, I suppose, academic perspective, but is that their, sto- their t- stories are told orally and they are communicated that way and it's important to pass those stories on but it's not like a public thing each family and like individuals hold almost like a copyright to particular stories Mm. um and there are like if their relative was a major participant in the story then it's their story um or their version of the story and only they can tell it um so you have to you cannot just talk to one person and have them tell you all of the stories about Jack Renton. You have to you have find to... someone who owns that story. Yeah, so you have to go to everybody and say, what are the stories that your family has about it? Um, and so he goes through... Um, and then on top of that, you can't be any member of the family. It has to be, like, one person in the family kind of owns that story, mm. like a family recipe or something. So you have to talk to the right person um which i find a really interesting way of like storing and sharing knowledge yeah um, but this guy called nigel um did go and did talk to them um and there was another guy called mccoy who also um lived there for years and taught and like kind of gathered these stories as well and they're like oh yeah he was a great warrior he would just go out and kill people all the time <laughs> <laughs> He had this amazing reputation as a, like, super fierce warrior who had come home with, like, five heads under his arm. Um, And some of them are, like, only, like, up to 60 people that he killed through his years there. Um, Mm -hmm. Weirdly, he didn't mention this stuff um, (laughs) when he went home. He didn't go home and say, like, by the way, I collected 60 heads, 60 human heads. Yeah. Um, But the other thing that he did while he was there, which I think is super interesting, is he prepared them as much as possible for contact, knowing inevitably contact with Europe is going to come and that contact is probably going to be slave ships. Mm -hmm. Um, He did his absolute best to prepare them for when the white people came um, and be like, don't trust them. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. To like take what you can, but do not trust them. And um, like did everything that he could to really make it so that they would not be disadvantaged in the yeah. 
in contact. Um, he eventually kind of, like, when that contact did come in when he was 25, so he'd been there for eight years, um, he was like, can I go home, please? And they were like, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and the story that's told by other people about it is that they like had to negotiate like captain murray who's the guy who rescued him is like well we had to negotiate in order to get him and they took some nails and some tobacco and some pipes um but the actual story as far as i can tell is that he wrote my name is john renton please take me to england on a bit of driftwood (laughs) um and then gave it to some of the locals who were going over to the ship to negotiate um and so they took the thing over and handed it over and they were even, oh, hey. Um, and then they said, can we take, like, can we negotiate for Jack Renton? And the chief was like, he can go if he wants. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's not a, like a slave. Um, but anyway, uh, he goes home. He goes to Australia where mm-hmm. he's a big celebrity and he writes his story and then he goes home and he's a big celebrity in England and he tells his story. Um, he goes back to Orkney um, and he's there for six months before he is like, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is cold. This is grim. It's dark all the time. <laughs> and I really miss the glorious beaches of the South Sea. <laughs> Um, so he gathered together um, a load of stuff. He took iron roofing, loads of tools and nails. He took a grindstone. Um, he took tons of stuff to basically make life a bit like stuff he knew that they needed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and went back to Salufu, where he um, stayed for pretty much the rest of his life. Specifically, he also worked um, with the Australian government in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um to combat what were called blackbirds, um, mm-hmm. which were slave ships that would go around the South Sea Islands and kidnap and enslave people. Sure. Um, and he worked really, like, worked with them and travelled around the South Sea Islands in order to try and stop them from happening. Um, unfortunately, because there were so many of the blackbirds, he his ship was mistaken for one. Um, and when he arrived on an island called Ambe Island, um, he went ashore and they immediately killed him. They took one look at all these white guys arriving and beheaded him. I mean, I can't blame them for that. <laughs> no, I mean, if there is one thing that we learned from Adam's family values, um, <laughs> uh, and which is a good lesson, I think, uh, is if white people come, just immediately kill them Immediately all. kill them um, all. At the very least, do not trust them and probably stop helping them. Um, because yeah. yeah, so he that's how he died. But he, um, yeah, he went from being a wee boy in Orkney to being having a seemingly quite great life. He didn't seem to get married or have children or anything, but he um, had a pretty great life living yeah. in. And I, so I read the White Headhunter, which is by Nigel Randall, um, and. It, kind of expected to just skim it but it's really good Mm. Um, and i genuinely recommend it (laughs) the next one i have is a guy called gonzalo guerrero who i think the sources are not great but it's a cool story so just a a teaspoon of salt with this one but it's so fun uh so he was a spanish sailor who was shipwrecked near the uh, yucatan peninsula in 1511 and he and the rest of the crew drifted in a lifeboat until they landed on the shore of mexico and were captured by maya people Mm -hmm. um and then there's a 
you know, he chilled there. Every, they were, the crew were enslaved um, and a lot of them were killed. So by the time um, Hernan Cortez, the conquistador who screwed everything up for the Aztecs, uh, arrives in 1519, only two of the crew are still alive. Um, the rest have been killed in the meantime. Guerrero had become a war leader for a guy called Nachan Khan, who was the ruler of uh, Chactamol, which is today is still a city in Mexico. I think I'm I'm not sure of this like how much territory that was at this point in time, but he'd married Nachan Khan's daughter Zazelha, um, and was like had become this respected advisor and leader within that community. Uh, when Cortez heard that there were two Spanish people alive in this uh, civilization he wrote to them and asked them to join them and Guerrero's response um, as reported by uh, someone a couple of steps removed I think is great he said apparently according to unreliable sources brother Aguilar (laughs) I am married and have three children and they look upon me as as a lord here and captain in time of war my face is tattooed and my ears are pierced what would the Spaniards say about me if they saw me like this go and God's blessing be with you for you have seen how handsome these children of mine are please give me some of those beads you have brought to give to them and I will tell them that my brothers have sent them from my own country and as he was saying this his wife interrupted to say what is this slave coming here for talking to my husband go off with you and don't (laughs) trouble us anymore with words (laughs) Um, he appears to have died in a battle between um, Honduran, native Honduran forces and, and the Spanish. Uh, when he was 66, there was a there was a body of a man who was European but heavily tattooed, according to the Mayan tradition. Um, and that's, that's, I just really enjoyed that we exchanged. Don't b- trouble that us anymore with one. words. It's very good. Look at how handsome my children are. Look at are. how handsome my, really? ch- look at my beautiful children. How can you ask me to go back with you to Spain? All the children there are very ugly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a fair argument. Like, look, they're great-looking kids, Um, kids. and and uh, I like them way more than I like any of you. (laughs) Yeah, can't Um, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. Uh, Was he battling against the Spanish when he died? I couldn't. I, I I. I think so. I assume so just because he was within the Mayan community a, a, yeah. a war leader. Um, but the it just said died in this battle. Um, but yeah, Fair enough. I, I'm, yeah, I'm going to assume he was and no one can stop me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, my one, this one is a bit different, but um, it is as an experience of what Chris said was uh, someone has gone from one life to a totally different life. Uh, he stayed in the same land, to be fair, mm-hmm. but uh, I just think this is a super fascinating story. Um, so, name guy is called Adam Rayner. He's mm-hmm. born in 1899 in Vienna um, to, like, a decent family. Um, and he grows up with um, dwarfism. Mm-hmm. He is very small um, and also developmentally delayed. Um, he was um, 54 inches tall when he was 18 years old mm-hmm. um, and only 56 inches at 19, um, which is little. Yes. Um, and it d- definitely meets like the criteria for dwarfism. Um, and he attempted to join the um, Austro-Hungarian army for to fight in World War One, mm-hmm. um, but he was refused military services because he was too little. Um, he did not meet the height requirements. Um 
And he was apparently also quite developmentally delayed, um, suffered from, um, uh, well, the words that they use in the books are not words that we would use anymore. So I'm just going to stick with developmentally delayed. He struggled to read, he struggled to write, um, and he also had um, kind of limited, like he had bad motor control. Mm -hmm. Um, He was knocking stuff over and had struggled to make with fine motor movement. Sure. which is one life. So he grows up his entire life is um, is very little. Um, and knowing small people as I do and being a small person, because when I was small, I was also quite little. Um, what that life is, is people coming over and patting you on the head and picking you up a lot. Um, yeah. And making a lot of statements about you being a hobbit. Um, <laughs> or just picking you up and saying, gosh, aren't you so tiny? As if you are some kind of pet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> However... Um, at about 20, he started to grow incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew um, along with his hands and his feet so that within three years, he was six foot nine. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he went from wearing a tiny child shoe to a size 20 shoe, apparently. Although, I, so I looked up all of the references I could for this because I like to check. Um, and I found, like, most of the information comes from newspaper reports mm-hmm. um, of his death, which are about as trustworthy as me just making things up. Yeah. And um, a 1961 article by the oncologist who treated him because he turns out that he had a, a tumor on his pituitary gland oh um which caused his him to grow just incredibly fast his and grow in that manner that you see with um, particular forms of gigantism where his head and hands and feet grow excessively even mm. in comparison to the rest of his body um so he has to constantly replace his shoes and his nose and lips grow and his tongue grew um, to such an extent that he couldn't really close his mouth properly. Um, He continued growing. He was admitted into hospital when he was um, about 26, when he was six foot nine. Um, And he was operated on for the pituitary tumour. And the... They hoped that that would stop his growing, but apparently it did not. Um, he was admitted into a home for the aged when he was in his 30s mm. um, because he could not look after himself because he continued to grow. Um, and when he died in 1950, um, although three different dates are given for his death in various places mm-hmm. uh, so somewhere between march and may in 1950 he died and he was either seven foot eight or seven foot ten wow that's um, wow yeah um so he lived the first half of his life as a a medic medically um suffering from dwarfism medically a dwarf um and then spent the second half of his life suffering from medical gigantism um that is that is wild it is wild the so i read the article i I paid for it and everything (laughs) (laughs) um that because most of the information about him comes from this article um by an american oncologist who treated him and took his tumor out Mm -hmm. um yeah which is like basically two case studies on gigantism um 
And it, the way that it writes about this poor man, <laughs> um, I am aware that technically cretin was a medical term in the 1960s, oh, but it shouldn't have been. <laughs> no, it should not. Jesus. <laughs> and it is used a lot. Uh, it was, yeah, it was quite something like, Every kind of two seconds, you have to be like, oh, okay. And that's how we talk about people, is it? Um, but, yeah. So, a life that begins one way and ends completely a different way. Both of yeah. which... I mean, it sounds like he suffered horribly in his um, later years. Um, and thankfully did not seem to be famous until after he had died. Yeah, I, I can't it imagine it would have Yeah. Um... Like, it's not until 1961 that this is published. Um, and from what I gather from looking at, um, like, this is what seems to get him then, like, in the Guinness Book of Records and um, have people start writing about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a kind of medical oddity, basically, bless him. Yeah. So thankfully, he didn't have to deal with people staring at him too much when he was older but he was still a young person who lived in an old person's home in vienna which no in graz sorry uh, he ended up in graz yeah but, that's rough yeah yeah a rough life um but yeah there you go that's my that's that's totally yeah. different end of life to beginning of life um i thought i would talk about as well just because uh you know to be I guess patriotic. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> some examples of uh, Pakeha Maori, which is what sounds like it's Pakeha people or white European people who uh, who assimilate into Maori culture, which was more common in the early, like before proper colonization, um, because mm. essentially in the earliest nineteenth century, there was a benefit to having a Pakeha person be be welcomed into your tribe because you could trade with these new people who had started showing up and speaking a different language. But eventually it became clear just how awful and total colonization efforts were going to be. And it became, uh, yeah, less common, (laughs) less, you're less welcome. Um, after, after that, which is after that. Yeah. It does really undermine your ability to make friends. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there are, but there were a bunch of people, primarily men, because it was primarily men going out there at this point in time who uh, became Pākehā Māori, such as John Rutherford, Barnett Burns, who eventually uh, came back to Europe to give lectures. and spent the rest of his life giving lectures on Māori culture. Tom Adamson and Kimball Bent. But one of the ones we know the most about is a guy called James Cattle, who um, arrived on Stewart Island, which is the little dot at the bottom of New Zealand. Um, he arrived there at the age of 16 uh, with, a, with five other sailors, who were immediately attacked by a group of Maori who were led by their chief Honekai. Um, all everyone else was killed, but uh, James Cattle was saved by Honekai's niece Toki Toki, who threw her cloak over him to save him. Um, and though the two of them got married, and he became part of the tribe, and he was uh, only seen in. And, and put on records a couple of times after this point. Uh, the first was in 1822 when he um, he and his wife, Toki Toki, sailed to Sydney with a flax trader um, to demonstrate how you use and prepare flax. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then again, in 1826, he was interviewed by a guy called Thomas Shepard, who was on an agricultural expedition for a corporation. Um, and he gave him lots of explanations of, of cu- the customs, local customs, and uh, also uh, how to how to spot if there is about to be an attack by a Maori, what they tend to do when they're preparing. Uh, to Which I guess, you know, sure, if, if you meet someone, you're like, hey, here's how not to die. Here's how not to die. Please don't die. Please don't die. Um, which I think was also pretty co- common amongst Pakeha Maori is, is, yeah, passing information between the two groups of how not to die. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and th- that was the last time he was sort of spotted in, in a way that you know Europeans could make records of he just seemed to live out his life uh, he was Lived one he was one way. of them some Pakeha Maori not all of them but some of them did end up uh getting tamoku which is um Maori, ta- Maori tattoo art which is nowadays you would never it would just never be considered tamoku if it was on a white person it's just not yeah it's it's, it's not, not it it but um at this point in time I think it was yeah was just he he became part, way of, of, part of the clan initi- so he was ingratiation being... or... well I mean it's more than that it's because... a way to show that you are being accepted I, I think that's it would be more um, as as you become part of this group you understand their customs because tamoku is unique and it is t- it is a language essentially you are communicating yeah. something about yourself very very specifically like every line means something different so I think as, okay. as you as you learn about the culture and adopt it's not just practices but um philosophies I guess then you are better able to build out what your own tamoku actually is okay yeah I mean I'm not an expert in that but that's that's my uh glib you know sofa um, understanding yeah. of how it works but that's one of the reasons why it's offensive now for white people to have tamoku because it is telling a story that they don't understand and it is yeah. not just taking another culture that isn't your own but it is disrespectful to, to your own culture and your own ancestors because you're sort of overwriting your history if that makes sense okay yeah yeah mm. um, yeah it does make sense mm. um, and turning it into something that's purely aesthetic yes completely yeah 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 right Okay, this is my last one, mm-hmm. um, and it's just because I wanted a Roman one. Fair um, enough. This is what we come to you oh, for. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, this person doesn't have a name because he's not a senator and was never a consul and therefore um, mm-hmm. not good enough to have a name. He's called just a certain freeman by Pliny the Younger, mm-hmm. uh, Pliny the Elder, sorry, but um, in his natural history. Um, and he was sailing around Arabia one day um, during the reign of Claudius when he was caught in a um, caught in a storm um, and floated for 15 days, um, at which point he arrived on the shores of what um, the Romans called Taprobane, mm-hmm. um, which is probably Sri Lanka. Sure. Um where he washed up um, and they took him to the king of Sri Lanka, where he hung out, um, plainly says six months, um, at which point he learned the language completely. So mm-hmm. I feel like he might be fudging the dates a little bit here. <laughs> just a little bit. Unless he was, you know, just a genius at languages. Maybe he was a genius at languages. I don't want to take that away from him. No. Some people are. Yeah. Um, so he might have been great with languages. So he was there for some time. And, and um, total immersion is a is a fast way to learn a language. Like my sister learned is. Spanish in a year by 
living somewhere that they didn't speak English. So maybe it just meant that he was acquainted with the language enough to speak to people. Mm. Um, but they were kind of fascinated by him, um, and they. Um, just asked him tons of questions about where he was from and what was going on um and the emperor and customs and what the hell is a roman (laughs) um and they specifically became really fascinated by um the kind of roman written law which is and contracts which they're obsessed with Mm -hmm. um and roman money um because he had loads of coins on him when they when he washed up yeah. um, and they were really amazed to find that they all had different faces on. So they all had different imperial faces. So they're all <laughs> from different times, but they all weighed the same. Um, and this impressed the um, Sri Lankans so much that they decided that they were going to form an alliance with the Romans um, and sent off a um, uh, an embassy with this guy to... <laughs> Uh, to set up contacts with the Romans, which yielded a like the reason that he tells us is so that he can tell us all this weird stuff about Sri Lanka, sure. um, which is great. But um, the certain freedman never went back to Rome to spend the rest of his life living in Sri Lanka, having a happy time. Yeah. Um, nice. The fact some of the things that Pliny says about the uh, the place of maybe Sri Lanka, Tampa Bay, are not brilliant because he <laughs> claims that they have. Um, Turtles that are so massive that an entire family can live inside their shells. Uh huh. Um, maybe the people are very small. I do not think that turtles that big ever lived. But sure, uh, he also thinks that one. They believe that a hundred years is a short lifespan. Sure. Yeah. I think. I think this is. I mean, you know, plenty. Plenty has his moments of accuracy and his moments of not that. So. It's mostly moments of being mad, bless him. But, uh, <laughs> he did his poor best. Uh, especially when he's talking about people. But it is, um, yeah. But it's a good story and I like this story of a guy um, basically rolling up in uh, an entirely new place, setting up in a, a trading relationship and then being like, I like it here, I think I'll stay. Yeah, yeah. Especially for a Roman, because Romans think that anywhere outside of Rome is the worst place in the entire world. Um, all yeah. of them, everywhere. Like, they're always being exiled to places and being like, oh, God, I'm dying. And you're like, you're on an island in the Adriatic Sea. Like, that's a paradise. <laughs> yeah, it's a super chill. You could just have a nice time. You live in a great life and you have, like, a, still have a staff and everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you're me- living objectively a great life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Literally anyone else would take this gladly. I would happily take it. It sounds um, really good, actually. But Ovid is there being like, ooh, <laughs> whinge bag. Yeah. Um, my last one is I thought I would I would take a an opposite the opposite direction of the colonial assimilation thing, which is um, a bit grim, obviously, because it is when you're not the people who are in charge. So this is, uh, there's a guy called Hemi Pomara, who we don't know a huge amount about him. And I heard about him because a novel based on him came out a couple of years ago called The Imaginary Lives of James Ponicky by Tina Makariti, which is really, really good. Yes. Um, it is really good. I read it. Yeah, it's super fun. Because 
Scott, who is both of our editors, who edited books by both of us, um, published yeah, it, and it's the, great. The UK publisher, and um, what a smart choice because it is, is abs- an absolute banger. Um, but uh, it's one of those nice choices where because we don't know that much about the real person, you're right, like the novel can have a lot of fun with what might have been. What we do know about the real Hemi Pomara, who the reason uh, the title of the novel is that uses the name James is because Hemi was called James by Europeans because they couldn't deal with Hemi. Apparently it was too hard for them. It's too hard. Um, so he was born around 1830. He was a member of the Ngāti, um, Ngāti Mutunga uh, Iwi, which is a tribe based around North Taranaki. Um, his family were killed by a rival rival tribe and he was left an orphan. Um, he made his way uh, or was taken to Australia and met an artist called George French Angus, who became his guardian. A guardian, there's quotes around that because he did not exhibit super guardian behaviour. But um, Angus sent uh, Hemi to an English boarding school in Australia and used him a lot as a model for his illustrations. He was doing illustrations of indigenous people and also flora and fauna in Australia and New Zealand to send back to England. And in 1845, he bought Hemi to London and exhibited him um, alongside Mm -hmm. the paintings he'd done of other um, Australian Aboriginal people and Maori people. Um, And so, uh, yeah, he chilled in London for a while, lived over here, and eventually became a sailor and went to sea. Uh, He was shipwrecked near Barbados and then joined another ship and uh, made it back to Auckland, after which point we don't really know much about what he did. There is a story about a man uh, with a similar name bringing his wife and children to London a few years later that may be the same person, but may not be. Um, but yeah, was 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 brought and chilled in London for a bit in an exploitative fashion. That doesn't mean he didn't also experience some nice times. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And was described as being incredibly well educated in in an, with an English education, which um, obviously most Maori at the time were not given. But yeah, that's 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 all we know about yeah. him. But the book is that's great. That's all we know about him. The, the, imagina- the book is the great. imagination about him is very very good. Imaginary Lives of James Ponicky, I highly recommend. Um, um yeah. yeah, and I like that it is kind of an, the other way around story. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. But and it's not like the some of them end up being a bit like the Dune story or like the last of the Mohicans where a colonizer comes and does the colonized person's culture better than they do. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is always the danger with these stories of being like, um, look at us, we're so great. But um I love uh yeah. the thing I always really like about these stories from a philosophical perspective is like how long life is and how people can have such like the, life feels short sometimes but you can live so many lives in one go yeah, <laughs> and, and some people so really much do can happen that you never would be prepared for there were a couple of people i came across who were like there seemed to be a thing that uh, kamehameha uh, uh, the first of hawaii had seemed to have a like just attract europeans who were like yeah i'll be an advisor for you <laughs> he had all of this yeah. like um Isaac Davis was one, and John Young, who was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll advise you in your dealings, because then I get to live here in Hawaii, which is super nice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like... Yeah, sure, why wouldn't I? <laughs> I, think, I think the last of the Mohicans thing is this impulse to put 
the, the white colonizer who is adopting this culture at the center of the story, where most of the time they're just standing beside the real center being like, if you want to do this, then I would suggest this. And then, yeah, chilling on a beach. Chilling on a beach. Yeah. Uh, rather than leading everybody in their struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's all our stories. That's all our say. stories. Well, we've talked for long enough, frankly. Yeah. No one needs to listen to us for any longer than that. What um, are we talking about next time? Next time, um, we are going to be talking about something that came up in a bunch of things. I think it came up in Rex Factor, a Rex Factor episode that I was listening to, and then it came up in something else as well. And I was like, we've got a question about this, and now I want to research it. <laughs> um, so this is just purely um, me wanting to do some stuff. Uh, it comes from Tom Hepworth. Uh, who I think asked us the question recently, so I've moved him up the list. So, but sad podcast, so we can do what we like. <laughs> yeah, we answer the questions we want to answer, and no one can say anything about it. No one can stop us. <laughs> we do it in broadly chronological order. Um, and the question is, what exactly is alchemy, and what is its history? Yeah, which is super um, fun. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited to do some um, some ma- alchemy some stuff. Magic. It's nice to have uh, a magic. The question. main thing that I always think about is that bit of Blackadder where um, Tim McKinney makes some purest green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Livia is now sitting directly underneath my microphone purring, so if you're looking around your house wondering what the fuck that is, <laughs> then that's what it is. <laughs> so everybody who's listening, my mum texted me a while ago saying she was listening to an episode while in her kitchen and was trying to work out what the hell this weird noise was. <laughs> It's always going to be Um So, yeah, she's just come to say hello. So, yeah, so that's what we're going to do next time. Um, mm. Until then, you can ask us a question if you want. Um, you can go to historyofsexy.com yep. and do everything there. Um, you can support us. We very much appreciate everybody who supports us. Um, and say thank you very much for everything that you do. Yeah. Um, we have three new... Um, monthly supporters now as of this month um so thank you to stevie hannah and sam yeah thank um, you or samuel we appreciate you very much and it helps us pay for things like hosting and um soundcloud and all the rest of it and make sure that we have nice microphones and things so we appreciate yeah. you thank you and research books and stuff like research was like meant that i could buy that article instead of having to read just the first page and imagine and, or <laughs> spend my own limited money on it um and be just boggle at the fact that the year my dad was born people were writing like this <laughs> yeah truly um, yeah. yeah um but yeah you can follow us and say hello and send us messages and support us and buy a t-shirt and uh all the rest of it at historyofsexy.com yeah um anything else Janina I don't think so I think that's about it don't think so yeah that's about it alright until next time bye Janina bye